Well, greetings in the Master's name. It's been good to be here this morning. I really enjoyed the opening Sunday school. It's amazing how the Lord works. A brother touched on some things in the opening that I was just incredible. I mean, I was just amazed at how God works. It's very some of the very things that I'll be touching on in our message this morning. The message this morning is a little different than what we're used to hearing. Um, it was an assigned message to me. Someone at one of our churches asked me to bring a message titled, Why Am I an Anabaptist? And as I was pondering on what to bring this morning after Matt had asked me to, to share, it's like the Lord just laid this message on my heart. It's, this is it. So... I took that and, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to bring, I'll, I'll do that. And then the opening this morning just really confirmed what the Lord told me. So the question is, why am I an Anabaptist? Turn with me to John 15. I've got a few verses here. This will be the only scripture I'll be reading this morning. Most of the message is, is based on history and who the Anabaptists are, and what, what we believe. Um, but I'd like to start with this scripture, because this, this passage of scripture is so foundational for what we as Anabaptists believe. John 15, verses 9 to 17. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments... Ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. So go back to verse 9. <clears throat> find in verse 9 that God loves us. The very foundation for becoming a believer because God loves us. Verse 10, how do we abide in that love? How do we maintain that relationship with God? It is through obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Right there is one of the foundational differences between Anabaptists and a lot of other churches. Obedience to the word of God. Verse 11, that obedience brings joy. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Obedience to God that walk with Him gives us a joy that keeps us going. Verse 12, another foundation of who we are. This is on my commandment that ye love one another. 
true love for the brotherhood and for the world around us. Verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Self-sacrifice, sacrificial love for the brotherhood. Verse 14, We are God's friends again if we do what He commands us to. Obedience to the Word. Verse 15, we see a close personal relationship with God. We're no longer just servants. As a child of God that walks in obedience to Him, we are Jesus' friends. And if you, there's other places in Scripture, we are family. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. That is, if you really think about that, being Christ's brother and sister, that's almost more than we can imagine. It's a close relationship with God. Verse 16, He has chosen us, He has called us to go and bear fruit, to be and do for Him. And again in verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Personal relationship as a body. Loving each other, loving God, and serving God with everything that we are. And we touched on that this morning. This dualism that is so prevalent in the world. Saying one thing, living another way. That can't be for us as believers. We are single in heart, word, action, we don't want any part of that dualism that we were talking about. We want to be unified with Christ. Love and obedience to God and love for each other should be the mark of an Anabaptist church if we are a true follower of Jesus Christ. So what are Anabaptists? I am not a historian. I do enjoy history, but... I have not put an in-depth amount of study into history. I'm not, that's, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm too busy. Um, but what are Anabaptists? I did a little study for this message. Anabaptists are literally followers of Christ who simply live out the teachings of the New Testament in literal daily walk. Does that describe you and I? So what sets Anabaptists apart from other groups? And I use the word Anabaptist this morning. This message would have been different had it said, why am I a Mennonite? That was not what was asked of me, is why am I an Anabaptist? It's a much broader um, subject. What sets Anabaptists apart from other groups? The Anabaptists, and maybe, I don't know how familiar you are familiar you are with the, Anabap the word Anabaptism or Anabaptist, but Anabaptist is a, is a fairly broad group, um, Mennonites, Amish, Brethren, uh, and there's more, would all fall under that category, Glycomine, um Generally, 50 years ago, that Anabaptist would have been a very conservative group of people. It has spread out more. When you talk about Mennonites, then you get into a realm that at least we're from Harrisonburg, Virginia, 
And there, the Mennonite, the name Mennonite doesn't mean much. Um, but the word Anabaptist, had, comes, what comes with that is a set of beliefs for which many have died. We're talking about that this morning. What sets us apart? Probably the clearest distinction today between Anabaptists and other groups will be the Anabaptist commitment to put into practice and physically live out the directives given in the New Testament. Literal obedience to God's word is the defining difference. So I want to start with a little bit of history. When did the Anabaptist movement begin? January 21, 1525 is the literal date of when the Anabaptist movement technically began. And so at that point, this is the year 1525, so think about this. This is 1,500 years after Christ had come. It's not that long of a time in comparison to history. But by 1525, pretty much the only Christian church, I say Christian church, the only church that would have, about the only church, was the Roman Catholic Church. And it was pretty much us. The Roman Catholic Church and the government were very, almost one and the same. It was everybody was Roman Catholic, and it, the church controlled the government, and the government controlled the church, and it was sort of this intertwined thing of control over the people, and it worked. But people started to get there started to be some unrest. And Luther, who was one of the fathers of the Protestant church, had been pushing in the years before 1525. He had been doing a little bit of Bible study. Actually, he was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And as he, because of that, he had access to Scripture. He studied and he realized that salvation by faith was not being taught. People were basically back in the same place that the Jews and the scribes and Pharisees were in the New Testament of simply living out, doing the right things, and, you know, uh, basically a, a religion of law instead of a religion of grace and faith. And so he started pushing back against that. And he started pushing for a biblical approach to salvation, among other things. And people started course we have that hunger for a relationship with God and people re were responding to that and start of this this unrest started to, to sort of well up in the in the Roman Catholic Church and there was a new awareness of how incorrect the Roman Catholic Church was and several men started to speak out for true biblical teaching and some of those men eventually got together in Zurich Switzerland and this was sort of remember the Roman Catholic Church and the state was all sort of intertwined. So this ended up sort of being a town council meeting where these men ended up together. And uh, the biggest part of their discussion that evening was on infant baptism. And it, I mean, they, from history, the, the, the conversation really got kind of animated that night and back and forth. And I guess town council meetings are kind of that way. But they didn't come to any real conclusion. They ended the meeting and 
There was a lot of con controversy over the subject. And so as a few evenings later, on this January 21, 1525, it's a group of like-minded men came out of that meeting, got together on, on, this, on January 21, and that meeting included George Blarock and Connor Grebel, and they got together to further discuss this issue of infant baptism. And that evening, after a good bit of discussion about it, and George Blarock finally stood up and asked Connor Grebel to baptize him. And he asked him to baptize him with true Christian baptism upon his faith and knowledge. And since there was no ordained leadership other than the priests at that time, there was no ordained leadership at that meeting, Connor Grebel agreed. And they he baptized George Blarock. And then George, in turn, ended up baptizing several other men at that same meeting. Now, there had been people up before this point that had rejected infant baptism, that had not allowed their children to be baptized by the church, by the Roman Catholic Church. But no one had had enough belief and, let's say, guts about them to stand up and be rebaptized. This This was the very first proclamation that the Roman church is wrong and I'm going to do it different. And they got rebaptized with a believer's baptism. So technically, the Anabaptist movement started that night when Connor Grebel rebaptized George Blarock. And thankfully, it was very well uh, recorded event and is it was written history. That was when the Anabaptist movement actually began. And Anabaptist actually means rebaptizer. Now today we still use the name Anabaptist, but we are not rebaptizer. Rebaptizers, we are we believe believe in true baptism. Well as soon as these men did that, the Roman Catholic Church just all the powers of be turned against them because they were taking a direct stand against what the church taught. And because it was part of the state, it had all the power of the state behind it. And anybody that took that stand of being rebaptized immediately was a target for, for persecution and death. And so immediately there was persecution to follow, but the seed was planted. The, uh, the seed of truth was planted, and people were hungry for truth. And so people kept turning to this, saying, yes, this is right, and kept giving their lives for that. So the Anabaptist movement had begun. Two years later, even, even in spite of all this severe persecution, the leaders of the churches got together, and Michael Sattler was the one, was the one that actually chaired this meeting. And I don't know if any of you would, would recognize the name of Sattler College. It's, I'm not sure. It's up here somewhere local. But it's basically named after Michael Sattler, I believe. But he chaired the meeting. They came together, and uh, they came up with the, what we call the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. Three months later, three months after the Schleitheim Confession of Faith was written up by this group of men, in May of 1527, Michael Sattler was 37 years old. And that struck me as I did this study. I'm almost 10 years older than that, and I'm pretty certain there's quite a few young men here that are in that age range, judging by the amount of children you have here this morning. 
he was he didn't care. He was willing to, to forfeit everything for the truth. And he wasn't it wasn't for himself. It was because it was truth. And that's a challenge to us today. Are we that committed to living out our lives, giving our lives for the truth if necessary? So May of 1527, Sattler was arrested by the Austrian authorities along with his wife and several other Anabaptist uh, men or people. Now, the Catholic ruler of Austria urged that Sattler be immediately executed by drowning. That's what they wanted. He just like, get rid of it. Well, well, they wanted to get rid of him because he was so well-known in the Anabaptist movement. But there was another ruler by the name of Joachim he thought that there should be some due process and that Michael Sattler should have an actual trial. And so he did. Michael Sattler went to trial. And at that trial, Sattler was charged with defying the emperor, rejecting the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, rejecting infant baptism, rejecting extreme unction, dishonoring the saints, teaching others, teaching against oaths and, pra and practicing the love feast, marrying and advocating non-resistance. Now, I want to explain a few of those things. Defying the emperor was basically going against the authorities. Rejecting the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the Catholic Church taught that when you partook of the bread and the juice at, and the wine at, at communion, you were physically, somehow that was changed in the physical blood and flesh of Jesus, and you were, you were partaking of his actual blood and flesh. When you did that, and Michael Sattler was like, "No, that's not. We're this is a representation of who Jesus was." And he rejected infant baptism. We understand what that was, but then he rejected extreme unction. Extreme unction was if someone was on their deathbed, and the priest could go and basically anoint them with oil, and they would be either healed or completely forgiven of sins, and immediately if they died, they went to heaven didn't matter about their life. They were just, the priest had the right to anoint them with oil and make them a saint. Well, not a saint, but they were, you know, born again, essentially. And there's more to that. And Michael Sattler said, no, that's not correct. That's not the power of the priest. Of course, he taught against oaths, and practicing the love feast was basically communion, with believers, believers' communion, and advocating non-resistance. We understand what non-resistance is. Well, Sattler was convicted. Sentence was, the sentence execution read like this. Michael Sattler shall be committed to the executioner. The executioner shall take, shall take him to the square, and there first cut out his tongue, and then fasten him to a wagon, and there, with glowing hot iron tongs, twice tear pieces from his body, then on the way to the site of the execution, five times more, tear pieces from his body. Then burn his body to powder as an arch heretic. The other men in the group were executed by sword, and the women, including Margarita, his wife, were executed by drowning. Pretty final. Now, the seven articles of faith for which he died, the reason he was treated this way, believer's baptism, Excommunication of sinners, believers' communion, separation from the world, pastors in the church, 
non-resistance swearing of, and no swearing of oaths. That was the seven articles of faith in the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. That's the seven things for which they arrested him. Now we understand what believer's baptism is. But they, in this confession of faith, looked at New Testament Scripture and said the church has the authority and the, the command to excommunicate sinners, to, to not have anything to do with someone who is willfully sinning. Um, they believed in believers' communion. Only those that are born-again believers should partake in communion. Separation from the world. The Christian should be different from the world around them. Pastors in the church. At that time, there was only priests. And they said, according to the New Testament, the pastors for the church, the leaders from the church, come from the group of believers, and they don't need to be some hierarchy. They're one of you. Pastors should come from the church. We understand what non-resistance is, loving our, our enemies. And then the seventh one was no swearing of oaths. The Bible's clear. We, don't, we shouldn't swear, about, swear oaths. Those seven things were so radical that they gave their lives for them. And we look at those and say, well, that's pretty simple stuff. It's not that big a deal. It is that big a deal. It was to them. And they gave their lives for truth. Those things are biblical mandates. Very clear in New Testament Scripture. And they gave their lives for them. Are we that committed today? And we could go, there's so many stories that we could go back and read of Anabaptists who gave their lives, who, all they went through because they believed that Scripture is truth and they were willing to live for it. So the basic, I want to look at the Anabaptism, basic beliefs of Anabaptism. What made Anabaptists distinctive from the Protestant movement? Remember, at the same time the Anabaptist movement started, the Protestant movement was starting also. Now, the Anabaptist founders owed much to Luther and the other Protestant reformers. Remember, Luther was the one that started saying, wait, we need true salvation here. We need, salvation is by faith. It's not by some priest saying words over you. Luther's, one of the main things that the Anabaptist founders owed to Luther was his emphasis on salvation through personal faith in Christ alone, by grace, as revealed in Scripture. That prepared the way for the Anabaptist movement. But on many other crucial issues, the Anabaptists differed as much from Luther as Luther did from the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> while, excuse me, while giving Luther his due, we do well to remember some historical realities. Luther, as well as Calvin and Zwingli, came to oppose harshly the Anabaptists. In fact, of the twenty to 40,000 Anabaptists martyred in the early decades, there was probably more massacred by the Protestants than there was by the Catholics. That's a harsh reality. And we, today, we look back and say, how could that be? The differences between Anabaptists and the Reformers were very deep. They would seem like simple things on the surface, but they were biblical truths that the reformers held to and were willing to give their lives for. The differences between the 
Anabaptists and Reformers. This were some of these. Luther, Calvin, and their associates wanted, wanted reformation of the medieval church. The Anabaptists wanted restoration of the, of the New Testament church. They wanted to go back to biblical New Testament church. The Reformers looked to the state to defend the establishment of an official religion. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, sought no government endorsement whatsoever. Reformers asserted that all people in the realm should conform to the official state religion. The Anabaptists, however, proclaimed religious and civil liberty for all. The Reformers retained much of the Catholic church-state fusion of that day. The Anabaptists, who saw themselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world, rejected any fusion of faith and citizenship. The church of which they testified and for which they died was based on Jesus Christ alone and knew no state boundaries. The reformers specifically endorsed military slaughter by Christian soldiers. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, expressed love for their persecutors and prayed for them. The reformers fragmented and compartmentalized Christian living. Luther wrote, As a Christian, man has to suffer everything and not resist anybody. As a member of the state, the same man has to fight with joy as long as he lives. The Anabaptists re rejected such ethical dualism. And we talked about that this morning. Saying one thing, living another way. Are we as committed to that life today as they were then? As you can see, the Anabaptists were not part of the great Protestant Reformation, but established a third option. You had the Roman Catholic Church, Protestant Reformation, and you had the Anabaptist movement. So there was three options. They upheld a very different and distinct set of values. Now today, of course, many other groups, many of the Protestant groups actually, have accepted much of what the Anabaptists rediscovered. And the differences between Protestantism and Anabaptism have decreased. But the total set of Anabaptist beliefs and practices remains distinctive. And even though the Anabaptists have often not practiced and preached it consistently, Anabaptism is still one of the most complete applications of New Testament doctrines, principles, and early church example. We can look around us and we see where groups have failed. We might can even see in our own group where something doesn't look like what we think it should. But as a total set of beliefs, I believe that Anabaptism is as close to the early church and biblical teachings as you can get today. Now there's 12 principles of Anabaptism that um, the modern Anabaptist church, and this is painting with a broad brush. This is not necessarily speaking about us as a conservative Mennonite church. This is Anabaptists as a greater body of believers. This is 12 principles that that group holds to fairly closely. Number one, a high view of the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. That would be bibliolatry. But Anabaptists accept the Scriptures as the authoritative Word of God, and through the Holy Spirit, the infallible guide to lead men to faith in Christ and to guide them in the life of Christian discipleship. Anabaptists insist that Christians must always be guided by the Word which is to be collectively discerned and they are led by the Holy Spirit. We are a body of believers and we 
take the, the Bible as a body, study it, and follow it as a group. Number two, emphasis on the New Testament. Since Christ is God's supreme revelation, Anabaptists make a clear functional distinction between the equally inspired Old and New Testaments. We see an Old and a New Covenant. We read the Old from the perspective of the New and see the New as the fulfillment of the Old. Where the two defer, the New prevails, and thus Anabaptist ethics are derived primarily from the New Testament. Third thing is emphasis on Jesus as central to all else. Anabaptists derive their understanding of who Christ is directly from the Word and emphasize a deep commitment to take Jesus seriously in all of life. Such a view runs counter to notions that the commands of Jesus are too difficult for ordinary believers. Anabaptists take Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as literal and meant to be lived out by His followers. And you will find that teaching if you get outside of Anabaptist circles. That gets watered down real quick. Oh, Jesus, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount was what it was, but not really for the modern believer. No, we believe that every word was truth and we live by it. Some of those teachings that we hold to that a lot of uh, Protestant believers do not. It's non-resistance, separation from the world. It's a two-kingdom concept. We're part of a heavenly kingdom. The world is another kingdom. Which, which kingdom are we going to be part of? You can't really... Um, our focus is in, our heav- in the heavenly kingdom. Um, divorce and remarriage. We believe that what Jesus said about it is truth. That's the way it is. And it might take a life of surrender and brokenness and outright obedience to Scripture, a life of singleness, but it's what Jesus meant. It's what he taught. Divorce and remarriage is wrong. Number four, the necessity of a believer's church. Anabaptists believe that Christian conversion, while not necessarily sudden and traumatic, always involves a conscious decision. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Believing that an infant can have no conscious, intelligent faith in Christ, Anabaptists Anabaptists baptize only those who have come to a personal living faith. Voluntary baptism, together with a commitment to walk in the full newness of life and to strive for purity in the church, constitutes the basis of church membership. The only way a church member is accepted is if they are living for the Lord. It's the way we have been brought up. It's the truth. It's the only way that we could be part of the body of believers is if we live for God. The importance of discipleship. Becoming a Christian involves not only belief in Christ, but also discipleship. Faith is expressed in holy living. In Christ, salvation and ethics come together. Not only are we to be saved through Christ, but we are also to follow Him daily in in obedient living. Thus, for example, Anabaptists from the beginning renounced the oath. They determined to speak truth. For them, there could be no gradation of truth-telling. Anabaptists continue to teach that salvation makes us followers of Jesus Christ and that He is the model for the way we are to live. We stand against dualism, once again. Number six, insistence on a church without classes or divisions. The church, the body of Christ, has only one head. While acknowledging functional diversity, we are men and women. God has ordained it that way. 
Anabaptist believers set aside all racial, ethnic, and class distinctions because we are all one in the unity and equality of the body. At the foot of the cross, all people are the same. Number eight, separation. I'm sorry, I skipped number seven. Belief in the church as a covenant community. Corporate worship, mutual aid, fellowship, and mutual accountability characterize this community. An individualistic or self-centered Anabaptism is a contradiction in terms. That struck me because that's something that even we face. I face it personally myself. Do I hold my opinions and feelings and desires above that of the body of believers for which I'm a part of? That's a contradiction to Anabaptist faith. We are a part of a body. We live as a part of that body. Number seven, belief. I'm sorry, number eight, separation from the world. The community of the transformed belongs to the kingdom of God. It functions in the world but is radically separate from the world. The faithful pilgrim church sees the sinful world as an alien environment with thoroughly different ethics and goals. The principle includes separation of church and state. Therefore, Anabaptists reject, reject all forms of civil religion, be it the traditional corpus Christianum or recently developed forms of Christian nationalism. Most of the more conservative groups, including us conservative Mennonites, would believe that separation from the world also means that we should have no involvement in government at all, including voting. And Jesus left us a very clear example by having all power, but never in any way using that power to affect change in the government. Even though that is exactly what the Jews were looking for in the Messiah, they thought Jesus was going to, or the Messiah was going to come in, change the government, change their, their way of living, and reinstate them as a nation. Jesus didn't do any of that. He could have. He had all power to take out the Roman government and set up his own kingdom here on earth. He did not do it. And neither should we as his followers. We are not here to change the government. We're not here to change the state. We are here to affect lives, one at a time. And this Christian nationalism I just mentioned, we saw it as strong in the last election as we've ever seen it, ever. When you see the American flag flown behind some of our most conservative groups and almost, almost a worship of Trump, that's Christian nationalism. The focus has swung somewhere. I'm sorry, Trump is not a godly man. I'm not anti-Trump. I think he did a great job as a leader. He's not a godly man. Why should we endorse someone, put our all behind someone who is not a godly man? In, in all reality, our nation does not need a truly godly leader. I say that, I know that's a, man, a mouthful, but that's the other world. We support them. We, we're part of this world. That's not our calling. Our calling is to change the world for Christ within this other realm that we're living in. We need to be very careful that we don't align ourselves with something that is not biblical, that is not Christ-centered. I know that we could 
say this political leader is better than this political leader and all those things are very true. Christ could have changed the government, but he didn't. And it's not our responsibility to do it either. Number nine, the church has a visible counterculture. As a united fellowship of believers, every Anabaptist congregation models an alternative community. Such a covenant community functions as an authentic counterculture. Each church represents the local body of Christ and as such becomes the hands and feet of Jesus to the local community. No matter what part of the world that you take Christ's teachings to, they are always in some way cross-cultural. There is no culture, no worldly culture, that aligns itself perfectly with Jesus' teachings. Therefore, each church becomes a model to the world of Christ's body here on earth. Number 10, belief that the gospel includes a commitment to the way of peace modeled by the Prince of Peace, and we call it non-resistance. Here, Anabaptists differ from many other Christians. Anabaptists believe that the peace position is not optional, not marginal, and not related mainly to the military. On the basis of Scripture, Anabaptists renounce violence in human relationships. We see peace and reconciliation, or the way of love, as being at the heart of the Christian gospel. God gave his followers this ethic not as a point to ponder, but as a command to obey. It was costly for Jesus, and it may also be costly for us as followers. The way of peace is a way of life. Sometimes we grapple with that. Number 11, commitment to servanthood. Just as Christ came to be a servant to all, so Christians should also serve one another and others in the name of Christ. Thus, separation from a sinful world is balanced by a witness of practical assistance to a needy and hurting society. We are not called to separate ourselves from the world physically, as in living in a commune somewhere. That's not what God called us to. We are here to show sinners who Jesus is, partly by our daily walk of life, partly by the way we relate to them not by hiding somewhere in a, in a commune. Number 12, insistence on the church as a missionary church. And I commend you for what you are doing here, an outreach to this community. Anabaptists believe that Christ has commissioned the church to go into all the world and all society to make disciples of all people, baptizing them and teaching them to observe His commandments. The evangelistic imperative is given to all believers not just leadership. These principles constitute the essence of anabaptism, these 12 principles we just talked about. While each emphasis can be found elsewhere, almost every one of these can be found in other groups in some way or another. But the, set, the total set of all 12 of those imperatives are the combination of what constitutes the uniqueness of anabaptists. The Protestant reformers had not gone far enough. The early Anabaptists, while diverse and far from perfect, committed themselves to nothing less than the restoration of the New Testament church. And we have the privilege of reemphasizing these 12 principles in word and deed here and now. Being Christ's hands and feet to the community in which we live.
So the title of the message is, Why Am I an Anabaptist? As I studied for this message, I found myself pondering the question, am I truly an Anabaptist, or am I not? To be an Anabaptist is to live a life of selfless surrender to Christ and service to others. Now I believe that Anabaptist theology, as I understand it, is correct doctrinally according to Scripture. However, I also realize that we are people, and even born-again believers don't get everything in life right. Because of this, even though I see imperfections in the local body, I might not agree with everything that my church does or that you know, somebody else might do in, our, in an Anabaptist church. The teachings and belief that we hold dear, that our forefathers held dear, are the truth that I want to pass on to the next generation. Now, I, to be frankly honest, I've not always felt as clearly about that as I do now. I struggled to understand some of the teachings I grew up with, and two of those teachings were non-resistance and separation of church and state, or abstaining from voting, if you want to get really down to the nuts and bolts of it. But as I've studied Scripture... And I've watched what's been happening in the world around us. Those two applications have become very clear to me as being vital for maintaining a biblical church, one that upholds Christ's teachings. The church has been called to win the world to Christ through sacrifice, love, and service. We cannot get entangled with the affairs of this world. We have a higher calling. We are part of a different kingdom. Our goals and motives are controlled by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The early Anabaptist forefathers caught a vision of that. And they lived their lives, they gave their lives for that vision. Am I, are you willing, as our Anabaptist forefathers were, to die for our faith? And I, am I an Anabaptist at heart? And I'm holding that word Anabaptist pretty high this morning. And in all reality, we could just replace that with a, a, a born-again believer of Christ. One committed to live out the Scriptures in daily life and make them applicable for the world to see around us. Are we committed to do that, no matter what it costs us? I was challenged as I did this study. Are we being the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us? Let's have a song.